Welcome to The Edge by MGR with your host, David Gill. Hey everybody, welcome to The Edge Podcast by MGR, your host, David Gill here. I hope everybody's having a fantastic week. As always, I certainly am. Um... Back to the regular scheduled program this week. I'm doing a regular episode, solo episode, like normal. Uh, If you did not see or see, listen to last week's episode, uh, it was with Tyler Cowen. He is a professor of economics. It was a great, great interview. It was really, really fun. He's someone who uh, I have followed online for a long time, and he has some great writing. It was very fun to interview him. I will say, though, honestly... I have one regret, personal regret from the interview, and that is that uh, I, I I had, so basically when I prepare for these interviews, I always have like a list of questions uh, that I want to ask, but, uh, before, you know, I always start with like a really long list, and I kind of just type out kind of as many questions as I want, and then I always cut them down to make kind of a cohesive interview. And so I had a bunch of questions about the EU and if you thought any com- countries in the EU would be leaving within the next five to ten years, France's place in the EU. I had a whole thing about that, but this was right before the whole uh, yellow vest thing was going on in France. And it's it's funny because I saw the headlines, but I thought it was just a regular protest. You know, I mean, you you see these headlines all the time. I thought it was just, you know, people in France protesting for the minimum wage, whatever. I, you know, you see these headlines all the time about protests. I didn't pay much attention to it. And then the day the interview goes up on last Friday, it became very apparent that this is much more than a regular protest. And I, uh, I was very sad that I did not have that conversation about the European Union with Mr. Tyler Cowen, because he has a lot of great opinions on it. I've read some of his stuff on his blog, but I didn't actually ask him about it. So I regret that. But anyways, uh, you know, he writes a lot of books. He uh, will probably write another one within the next year or two. I don't know. We'll see. So maybe when he does, I can see if he'll join me back on the podcast again. I would gladly have him. But anyways, I just wanted to say I do regret that. I I was kind of pissed with myself. I said, damn, why did I cut those questions? But anyways, today we are going to, we're going to do a little mix, mix up today. Mix up, is that the proper terminology? Anyways, I haven't done a headlines news episode kind of discussing what's going on uh, in probably a couple months. So I figured now would be a good time to kind of talk a little bit about what's going on. Uh, with Google and Congress, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb all going public or planning to go public. Uh, we're going to talk about Apple's media efforts. What are they thinking? What's their strategy there? Why is Apple trying to also become a media company along with everyone else now? And some other stuff. So, anyways, let's get into it. You ain't got no money, I ain't got no time. We are going to start off this week talking about Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, and his meeting with Congress. I'm sure you saw plenty of headlines. You maybe even watched some clips. I don't know. But I'm going to give you my impressions and what I thought about the whole thing. 
I think the one mistake that Congress made was that they did not press Google enough on their plans for China. They did ask them a few questions, but they didn't really dig to the core of the problem like I thought they should. And the core problem of Google opening a censored version of their search engine in China is that the Chinese government can then leverage its multi-billion dollar market. Because remember, if Google opens a search engine, they will start making billions upon billions of dollars from search ads in China, just like they do in the US and Europe and everywhere else. But by the Chinese government being the gatekeeper to that massive Chinese market, they're going to use that market as leverage to get what they want from Google. Google could be, if they enter the Chinese market, coerced into making compromises with China that give them access to, say, specific foreign user data, like users in the US or Europe or Canada or wherever, or many other things that Google has that they would not, you would not want in a government's hands, let alone the Chinese government's hands. But it will be hard once Google is established in China for them to say no and risk their multi-billion dollar revenue stream operation getting shut down. So that's the problem with Google opening a censored version in China. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think it would be a massive mistake for Google to create a censored version of their product in China. I mean, so far we've seen their own employees protested we also know that a lot of high caliber talent and these highly sought after recruits in silicon valley and elsewhere will not want to work there if they know that the company is not a good place to work and one of the biggest things that facebook and google and microsoft and amazon and all these companies fight for is the top talent and if Google goes through with this, I can guarantee you that a lot of that top talent will take their talents elsewhere and not want to work with Google. It's also a very bad brand image to willingly take part in censorship and violate people's freedom of speech rights. It doesn't look good on the Google brand to do something like that. And most of all, it's just a morally wrong thing to do. I think, you know, forget about business and profits for a second. You know, Google's founding slogan was don't be evil. That was their founding slogan. And if infringing on the rights of 1.4 billion people or however many people live in China these days for the sake of profit isn't evil, then I don't know what is. You know, if Google does this, I think it will be the first step towards their downfall. I'll make that statement right now. And not to mention, by the way, that if they do this, do they not think that they won't become regulation target number one for every member of Congress and the EU? I think this is just a foolish move. It's short-term thinking. And I think Sundar Pichai is smarter than this. I think the people at Google are smarter than this. And they need to, as hard as it may be, pass up on those short-term dollars because you don't need them either google you make tons of money you're still growing you don't need to risk all of it to make a little more in china but you know it looks like they're gonna do it anyways so what does it matter what i think i will say the other thing that uh, congress questioned them about quite a bit um at least i should say the republican congressman um was that 
basically the accusation that their Google search results are biased towards the left. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I'm just going to give you my thoughts. I, so first of all, as Sundar Pichai did say, and uh, many others have said, it's not possible for one employee at Google to change the algorithm to be skewed left, or even a group of employees. That's not how uh, these companies work. But do I think it's possible that search results are skewed left? Yeah, I do. And I don't think it's necessarily on purpose. I think, and again, I, I don't know. I wasn't in the room. I'm not in the room when they're working on page rank and the algorithms for their search engine. But I can say that there could have been unconscious bias because obviously it's no you know secret that you know most people in Silicon Valley are very left leaning as are many Google employees, and that doesn't really matter so long as you don't include that bias into your products. And so I don't think anyone at Google, or whether it be the top level executives or engineers, um, I don't think anyone at Google purposely, consciously was skewing results towards the left. I don't think so. But I think it certainly is possible that, for example, right, when they need to decide, when they're modifying the algorithm to determine which news sources might be more trustworthy than others, if you're someone who has left-leaning views, say, and it could be the same for people on the right, but in this case, it's just the left, you might find publications that are more left-leaning more trustworthy and publications that are right-leaning less trustworthy and give them more weight. And again, I'm not saying that you're actually even doing this consciously. I'm saying that it could have been done subconsciously. You know, a lot of people on the left hear Fox News and automatically say, oh my God, that's the most biased thing in the world. And a lot of people on the right hear, I don't know, MSNBC or some other uh, left-leaning thing and see, think automatically, oh my God, that is completely biased. You can't trust a word out of their mouths. Both sides see the opposite, if that makes sense. And so I think that if a lot of Google employees are on the left, they could have unconsciously added bias to their algorithm. Again, I think more needs to be uh, looked into on this to determine just how biased there, how biased it is. I think, by the way, it's incredibly difficult to build the perfect algorithm. I don't think you can ever build the perfect algorithm because you have to give weight to some things and not to others. And so I don't necessarily blame Google as much for this because at the end of the day, it also doesn't make economic sense for them to alienate half of the population uh, with their search results. It's just bad business. So I don't think that they did anything on purpose. I think there could have been unconscious bias in the algorithms. But again, I think more needs to be seen on that. And so that's kind of my opinion on that. I think the bigger deal is Google and their plans for China. That is the much bigger deal to me right now. All right, let's move on from Google. Let's talk about Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb and their plans to go public next year. So Uber and Lyft both filed for IPO, and Airbnb is strongly rumored to also be planning on going public next year. The question is, I mean, there's a few questions here, but the two major ones are, is there enough capital to go around for all three? We're talking about valuations in the tens or in Uber's case, over $100 billion. And will Wall Street be willing to look over a lack of profits in Uber and Lyft's case and value those companies 
so highly that lose billions like Silicon Valley VCs have? I don't know. See, Uber, for example, wants to IPO at a $120 billion valuation. And I just do not see any way that is even close to possible. They lose about a billion dollars a quarter, and they have no clear path to profitability. So the thought of them getting a valuation north of $100 billion to me isn't just laughable, it's delusional. I love the product. I think Uber is a great product. I think the company has gone through some rough patches, but they're better now. Um, you know, I use their product frequently, but right now their business just isn't sustainable. They're losing tons of money, and the stock market isn't in the best of conditions right now. And so to me, I just don't see a $100 billion plus dollar valuation happening for a company that's losing over $4 billion a year. I just don't see it. And when you add that on to the fact that Lyft and Airbnb, the other two decacorns, meaning uh, $10 billion plus dollar startups, are also going public next year too, I don't think there's enough money to go around for all of them quite frankly. You know, Lyft is kind of in the same boat. They're not losing as much money. They've done deals with GM, so they're kind of siphoning cash from GM. But they're very much in the same boat. I think Uber and Lyft are going to face a harsh reality when they go public, and they're not going to get the valuations that they want. Airbnb, though, on the other hand, I think is a different story. They're projected this year to do about $4 billion in revenue, and shocking, they're profitable. I know, crazy, right? A business that's profitable in tech. Who would have thought? And so Airbnb has been growing very quickly. They're still growing. They've been doing very well. They're actually making money. Like I said, they're profitable. But as always happens, when one innovates, competition comes knocking. In this case, for Airbnb, it's the OTAs, the online travel agencies, the price lines, the Expedias, etc. They have started listing homes and guest bedrooms as well as hotels on their sites now, too. This is a problem for Airbnb. I mean, the OTAs have massive marketing budgets and huge customer bases already. So they can pose a real threat to Airbnb's growth just because so many people go to them to make bookings. Now, Airbnb still has a distinct advantage because the OTAs just started recently and they're still very far behind. And they don't have anywhere near the inventory or the available rooms that Airbnb has. But that could change soon. You know, people who rent out rooms or homes are platform agnostic. If there's a place where they can go to make money renting out their rooms or homes, they're going to do it. They don't really care about the platform itself. They just care about the money at the end of the day. So I think the OTAs, if they are able to bring meaningful uh, bookings to these people, then they will all very quickly also begin listing their properties on the OTAs as well as Airbnb. So that's the only real threat I see to Airbnb's valuation when they go public next year, is the question of what's their response to the OTAs? How are they gonna battle them? Are they gonna start listing hotels on their site? We've already seen them start listing boutique hotels. Will they continue that trend? What's the overall strategy moving forward as Airbnb is now a multi-billion dollar company? How do you keep growing from here? All right, let's move on to Apple. Apple is relaunching Texture 
Um, Texture is a company that they acquired earlier this year, and it's essentially a Netflix for magazines. You uh, pay 10 bucks a month, and you get access to over 200 uh, magazine subscriptions. And so they acquired them earlier this year, and now they're planning on relaunching the service within their Apple News app that comes with the uh, iPhone or any uh, iOS device. So I wanted to talk about Apple's overall content strategy here. Apple has started to spend big on media content, and they plan to spend billions in the next coming years. The idea being that instead of taking the Netflix approach of you know creating content and asking people to pay for a monthly subscription or something of that nature, they just want people to buy more of their devices to access that content. Now, I'm not sure that having exclusive content is enough to sway someone towards an Apple product over another. But what I do think could work, and I'm sure that they're very aware, is that I do think it could work as an excellent lock-in mechanism that they can layer onto the other lock-in mechanisms they already have. Uh, what I mean by that is that you know if an Apple user is used to getting lots of great shows and content and whatever else from Apple, then they will be less likely to switch to other companies' products when they know that they'll lose access to all of that content when they switch. So I think it definitely could work in the sense of lock-in. I'm just not sure if it's going to be enough to get customers to actually switch from one device to another that aren't currently Apple users. Which then begs the question, is an investment of a few billion dollars a year to keep current customers in the Apple ecosystem worth it? Yeah, probably. For Apple, yes. Um, especially, obviously, when you consider that the Apple has hundreds of billions in cash and un almost unlimited access to capital so yeah in their case it definitely makes sense you know i mean they sell tens of billions of dollars of apple hardware a year and if spending a couple billion on media content means that those people stay spending their customers stay spending tens of billions of dollars on their hardware every year then yeah it could be worth it but again i don't know if it's necessarily going to work to bring in new people. I'm not sure if you can sell hardware through media content like you could with subscriptions or other manners. We'll have to see. I'm not sure. Obviously, if they have tons of content and really, really good stuff, then maybe. But I think we'll have to see. So where does Texture fall into all of this? Because Texture is 10 bucks a month. It's not free with an Apple device. Well, it falls in the same category as Apple Music. You know, one of Apple's big promises in the last two years has been that they will continue to grow their services revenue. They're going to start making a lot more money from services and not just make all their money from the hardware that they sell. And launching a successful, you know, Netflix of magazines, quote unquote, can do just that for them. But will launching it under the news app this time make the end result any different? Will it result in millions of people subscribing to Texture? Maybe, but I don't know, honestly. I mean, would people be willing to pay $10 a month to access over 200 magazines? Texture had 200,000 subscribers when Apple bought the company uh, a few months ago. But I will say that if there was any group of people that are most likely to spend 10 bucks a month to access magazine content, it's probably going to be Apple users. You know, people who own iPhones are much more likely to spend money on digital content. And I think Apple's hoping that trend will continue with texture. 
In this case, we'll have to wait and see. And I'm personally very curious to see where this is all heading for Apple. We'll see 2019 when they launch. And we're going to finish off today's episode by talking about Verizon and them writing down a $4.6 billion loss on Oath, its media arm. Oath is the parent company of Yahoo, AOL, Huffington Post, and other uh, media companies that is all owned by Verizon. You know, Verizon, though they've spent billions on their media efforts, they never really had a cohesive strategy. They never really had a plan for execution. They created Go90, which I talked about uh, many times, which was free for Verizon users, but didn't really have a lot of content on it that really brought people in. Most of the shows were kind of game shows slash reality show type things, and they were made in a clearly low budget, and they didn't really stand a chance at competing with Netflix or HBO or any other you know, media subscription. They also spend billions on the ad-supported side of content with Yahoo and AOL and Huffington Post. You know, if you listen to my podcast from two weeks ago, the one before the Tyler Cohen episode, you would know that ad-supported digital media is struggling a lot right now. I mean, this is a classic example of a company like Verizon, a big company, having the right idea but horrible execution. Verizon wasn't wrong in believing that creating a strong media arm would be valuable, but their execution strategy was just to throw ridiculous amounts of money around because they had it and pray that something sticks. Just hope something works. But then when nothing did, instead of trying to refocus and come with a better strategy, they just decided to give up completely. I mean, they shut down Go90 and relinquished all of the licensing rights. They just give them up. They said, here, you can have them back. We don't care, even though we already paid for them. And at this point, Oath's future is uh, to be determined because they're struggling to make money through ads enough to pay for all of the content that they're putting out on these platforms. But to me, considering Verizon's newly appointed CEO was brought in specifically for his experience in building internet infrastructure and Verizon's big plans on spending billions to build a 5G network, I don't think Oath will be a top priority for Verizon, especially its CEO. I'm just saying if there's any Oath employees out there listening, it wouldn't be a bad idea to start refreshing your resume because I don't know if you're going to still have a job within a few years. I'm just being honest. Anyways, guys, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you did enjoy, please leave us a rating and review on either iTunes or Google Play, uh, wherever you listen. It would greatly, greatly help us out. And anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week.